If you're ever to get up off your knees and say, Father, enable me, strengthen me, encourage me, you have to be willing to dig deep. You have to have a championship mentality. You have to say, I've been defeated by sin in the past, and I am no longer going back there. I will persevere. I will keep going. Father, enable and strengthen me, please. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Today our scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 6. And if you were with us last Sunday, we began a new series of studies on New Testament book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, can you turn to Revelation chapter 6? And you'll find it on page 1919 of the church Bible, page 1919. Chapter 5 last week, set in context, chapter 6 and chapters 4 and 5 provide the gateway for the rest of the book of Revelation. And chapters 4 and 5 highlighted for us God sitting in transcendent majesty upon His throne, directing and leading and guiding all of history. 
And in chapter 5, we see Jesus stepping forward as the exalted, risen Lamb of God. And He takes the scroll of history in His hand, and He begins to open the scroll by breaking the seals. And that will give you the context for our reading this morning. And so, when it says, I watched as the Lamb, that word Lamb is symbolic language for the risen, exalted Christ. So, let's begin in chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wage, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood. And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed." I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Remember chapter 5. Chapter 5, very quickly, God is God sitting on His throne, and in His right hands He holds the scroll of what was, what is, and what is to be. All of history all of eternity is to be found there in the scroll. And John laments in chapter 5, who can open this scroll? Who can break the seals? Who is worthy? And Christ steps forward, takes the scroll, and in chapter 6, He's about to break those seals and look at the scroll of God's purpose and plans for all of history. 
And that begins chapter 6. And John writes, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, some of the greatest theological minds and New Testament scholars interpret this white horse as Christ riding through history, influencing and conquering evil as we know it. But not all New Testament scholars and theologians are there. Some, in fact, interpret it the opposite way, and I think I tend to agree with them, and I tend to agree with them for this reason. When you begin to drill down more deeply into the original language, imagery, and symbolism used in Revelation, when you compare that imagery to chapters 9 and 11 and 23, what you also discover is this, that there evil is portrayed as wearing a crown out for conquest, for power over others and often bringing mayhem and chaos and war and injustice with it. And so, I tend to lean to the interpretation of this first seal as John indicating to us that throughout history, in our present day and history still to come, there is a cosmic war going on for the heart and mind and soul and salvation of humanity. And if you're needing an image in your mind, the image given here is this, that the white horse, although begins well, is in fact evil disguised as light. And you get that in Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus is speaking and saying, beware of that which is evil portraying itself as light and looking for conquest and power and victory. And that's the imagery we have here of wearing a crown, an individual in power with a war bow in their hand looking for conquest. And then in verse 3, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And to him was given a large sword. And so you see the continuum of that imagery of war and mayhem and peace was leaving. Red, of course, symbolic of the shedding of blood. And the imagery and symbolism of warfare and tension and disruption in the life and times of humanity is crystal clear. And then in verse 5, you have the third seal. And when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a black horse. His rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wage and three quarters of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, what is going on here in the midst of war and evil and chaos and mayhem and death? What comes next? an image of a scale being weighed. 
And the image is telling us this. In the midst of all of the mayhem and the chaos, how does it affect us? First, the daily necessities of everyday life, barley and wheat, become very expensive, and food becomes scarce, and so famine and hunger are next. And notice at the end of that verse, you have a reference to oil and wine. But do not destroy or interrupt them, because the people selling the oil and the wine sell it at an inflated price. And so when food and the daily necessities is becoming scarce, oil and wine become expensive, and greed and injustice become a daily experience. And you can see all of the imagery of the apocalypse, all of the imagery of chaos and mayhem and warfare and conquering and greed and injustice taking place. And John, in many senses, is reminding us of what has happened, what is happening, and still what is to come. And notice what comes next. And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of death. And John is taking us even further into the vision which God has laid out for him. Again, imagery of war, and not just famine, not just tension, not just difficulty, not just chaos and mayhem, not just famine, greed, and injustice, but death and death on a large scale. That's what's coming here. And Hades is coming at the back of death and gathering together all those who have died. That's what's happening here. And then we saw in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge your blood. Now, please remember the context in which John is writing. It's the year 95-96 AD. Domitian was the Roman emperor. For the first time in history, persecution was breaking out across the whole Roman Empire. Persecution had taken place in the past, but it was localized and regional under Nero, particularly around Rome. Peter and Paul were martyred for their faith at that point. John had been arrested for his faith. He was sent into exile in Patmos, where all of this takes place. And first century historians tell us this, 40,000 people lost their lives under Domitian in those years. And John is writing to his first readers and saying to them this, hold on, be faithful. It is not always the way you think it is. And when we are tempted to hold on to the principle, it ain't over till it's over, that's what John is saying. And he's saying spiritually, it seems that you are under the sword. And it was a living reality for them. But it's not completed yet. And God is still sovereign and still in control and still shaping and fashioning and directing and influencing history. Don't give up 
even though it may be difficult and hard, and as you look at it, it's just impossible. That's what John was saying to first-century Christians, and that's the message ever since. It's not over till it's over. The best is yet to come. Now, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? When you're living through difficult, challenging days, those are the days when you fall down on your knees. Those are the days when you have to hold on. Those are the days when you say, Father, do not let hold of me. Hold on to me. Don't give up on me. Don't abandon me. Allow me to be faithful. And all of that is wrapped up in what John is saying here. And then we have the sixth and final seal for this morning. We'll look at the others next week. And he writes, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late fig drops from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, and the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And now John is looking to that great and final day when the culmination and the consummation of all of eternity, past, present, and future, will come to pass, and God will still be on the throne orchestrating and engineering His purposes and His plans. Now, you may be here this morning saying, Richard, thank you. I don't know a lot about Revelation. I've learned a significant amount today. Thank you for that. But I have a question. Richard, my question is this. Before I came to church this morning, I read through all of chapter 6, not just the verses you chose, but all of the chapter. And towards the end of the chapter, at verse 16, and if you have your Bible, flip over the page to verse 16, the judgment of God is coming. And in verse 16, it tells us this, and those who were experiencing the judgment of God called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? And Richard, my question is this. It's not that I don't believe. I do believe. It's not that I never come to church. I'm here regularly. It's not that I don't live by Christian moral principles in my private life and in my public life and raising my family and in my office as well. I do all of that. But here's my question. When someone in my office comes to me, and we are talking about how's the weekend, and they ask me, what did I do? I will say, I did this and that and the other. Sunday morning, I was at church. And they then may ask me this question. And the question is this. In a 21st century setting, does the church still believe in the judgment of God in these days? In previous generations, I can see that. Is that what you believe today? Well, the justice and the judgment of God go hand in hand. And next week and the week after, that's exactly where we're going. But let me answer your question by asking a question. Richard Dawkins 
well-known author and atheist, has written a multiplicity of books against Christian belief. And back in 2005, 2006, he wrote one called The God Delusion. And his thesis is this, that man is basically good, capable of all sorts of great and wonderful things. And we don't need some kind of transcendent being setting moral and spiritual standards for us. Thank you all the same, but we're more than capable of setting our own moral and spiritual standards. And more than that, humanity is basically good. So we are fine, thank you, all the same. And then Dawkins goes on and says this, the God of the Old Testament, the God of judgment, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it. He is petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochist, capriciously malevolent, and a bully. You kind of get the feeling he's not a supporter of God, don't you? <laughs> and here's my immediate response, and then we'll go a little deeper. My immediate response is this. Professor Dawkins, for most of your book, you've been arguing that God does not exist. So why on earth are you upset about someone who doesn't exist? Because if you were having a debate about the tooth fairy, I doubt very much if you would be this angry. So that's the first question. Is there something else going on in Dawkins' life that causes him to be so aggressive? Secondly, and it's this, if God did not write the Scriptures, who did? It must therefore be man. But it can't be man because man is basically good, and this person is petty, unpleasant, unforgiving, a control freak, bloodthirsty, an ethical cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, and so on and so on and so on. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. If man is basically good, and man wrote this because God doesn't exist, man has a problem. And so the logic and rationale breaks down a little, but let me take it a step further. And it's this. Are we as mature adults capable of setting moral standards for ourselves, our family, our nation, and the world? And are we then capable of keeping up those standards? Now, I would want to confess this morning, I believe that humanity is utterly spectacular in so many areas of our life, capable of exceptional good and generosity and kindness and a willingness to help. Absolutely spectacular. But I also know this, that when sin impacts a life, it does so in ways that are dark and ugly and usually end up causing pain and hurt and chaos and brings grief and a debilitating side to life. If man is basically good, which Dawkins argues he is, please explain to me this. In World War I, 
15 million people were killed. In the Russian Civil War, 9 million were killed. In World War II, 55 million lost their life. And last April, April 28, 2016, United Nations said 400,000 people lost their lives in Syria in the previous three years. Man is basically good. Talk about being delusional. That's nuts. Because we know in our own experience, and the Scripture tells us this, now when sin does invade a life, it becomes deceptive and addictive. And when power controls, power absolutely corrupts. And we know it to be true historically, politically, and in so many ways in our lives so many ways in our lives. And please do not misunderstand what I'm about to say next. The cosmic battle for the heart and mind and soul of humanity is absolutely real. We're living in those days, and we're living amidst a culture who seeks to minimize and marginalize any kind of standard, not just Christian moral standard, but any kind of standard, because as soon as you set a standard, people have to live up to it, and if they are incapable and have no desire to live up to it, they will never attack the standard. They attack the person who is behind the standard. If you take a stand for Christ in your place of work, if you express and confess the love and grace and mercy and goodness, as well as the justice and the judgment of God, you will be considered odd. You will be marginalized and minimized by a society and a culture who are spiritually and morally bankrupt. And we see it in human sex trafficking. We see it in child abuse. We see it in domestic violence. We see it in alcohol and drug addiction. As a pastor, I grieve over the families who have had to go through divorce and the impact it's had on those children. And as Christian people, the gospel tells us this. There is another way. And the Scripture not only educates us, but it equips us and enables us to live for Christ day by day by day and say it doesn't have to be this way. There is another way, and it's love and grace and forgiveness and a new hope and the opportunity to begin again. That's who we are called to. That's why Revelation tells us this. It's not over until it's over. The best is yet to come, but if you are ever to be the person He's calling you to be, if you're ever to get up off your knees and say, Father, enable me, strengthen me, encourage me, you have to be willing to dig deep. You have to have a championship mentality. You have to say, I've been defeated by sin in the past, and I am no longer going back there. I will persevere. I will keep going. Father, enable and strengthen me, please. Amen? Amen. That's what Revelation is teaching us. And for all of the doom and gloom in the early part of the chapter, it doesn't finish there. But you're going to have to wait till next Sunday to hear how it does finish. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the spectacular passage of Scripture. Thank you for all we have enjoyed this morning, the study of your Word, time in your presence, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, rejoicing in a baptismal family. Take us into this week. Strengthen us, renew us, and remind us that you are the sovereign God of heaven and earth, and it is not over until it's over. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.